Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is July 26th, 2017. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I'm a professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today I'll be interviewing Christine Harada, the former Federal Chief Sustainability Officer under the Obama administration. Christine is currently working with the XPRIZE Foundation as a bold innovator, developing the next XPRIZE for clean air. She is also a senior fellow with the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, where she is helping build out the clean tech economy in Los Angeles. Christine, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Tell our listeners, first of all, what your role was under the Obama administration, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. So I actually had two roles. I first started out with the General Services Administration, which is uh, effectively the landlord for the federal government. And as part of my portfolio, I had uh, high-performing green buildings, and we developed all the policies with regards to managing federal assets for real property, personal property, uh, sustainability policy, etc., I then went on to serve as the Chief Sustainability Officer uh, of the United States um, for the last 16 months or so of the administration um, and had the great privilege and honor of working across the entire federal agencies. That's pretty impressive and that must have been uh, very exciting for you. Is that a role that, to the best of your knowledge, has been discontinued or under the new administration or what is happening with that? Yes, under the current administration, uh, so my replacement has not yet been named. Uh, the office, however, and a lot of the work still does continue. And the good news there is that we are fortunate to have a number of career civil servants, uh, federal employees who are, who do not change with the administration, who are still occupied with the office. And secondly, also, given the priorities of the current administration, candidly, they're just running things as they've always been run. They're flying fast and low under the radar. And so they're continuing still to push forward sustainability initiatives. They may not necessarily be calling it sustainability. They may not call too much attention to it and perhaps do more of an emphasis on cost savings and efficiency and effectiveness. Um, but that work indeed is still going on. So that's good uh, good news, I think, for most people listening to this podcast. Do you see that role, though, being endangered uh, over time with, as you said, the, the priorities of the administration and the sort of flip-flopping on certain issues? Where do you see that going in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And super candidly, I am not sure of what the ultimate outcome will be. Uh, best guess, um, it's such, again, such a lower priority area for this administration. I think the next appointment will not happen for probably quite a number of years, Christine's personal speculation and opinion. Um, but again, a lot of the nuts and boltsy, the not so sexy stuff uh, will continue on. And so you see people in those roles that you worked with perhaps being vested and interested in continuing that work because of their sort of personal interests or their vestedness in this? Absolutely. Um, so I had the, again, the great opportunity to work with so many fantastic professionals in the sustainability field. And these are folks that are very committed, very deep, deep experts, uh, and a ton of experience in implementing these types of programs in a fairly constrained environment, both budgetarily and from a legal perspective as well. I think that, um, a lot of the work that they will be undertaking will be, again, just recrafted under a different name. And I think a lot of the focus is still going to be on facilities and fleet efficiency of our motor vehicle pools. Um, how do we think about securing energy and ensuring that we are resilient? Uh, for frequently, federal government uh, agencies are the first 
to respond in times of emergency. Uh, and that includes agencies like Department of Homeland Security, with FEMA, the Federal Energy uh, Emergency Management Agency, et cetera, but also the Department of Defense frequently does get called in to help. So they themselves are also in a position where they want to be able to guarantee that they can meet their mission needs, as well as help out the local communities in which they're based to be able to be that good neighbor and to be a friendly presence in the area. And that's so true. I think most people uh, or a lot of people might know that the Department of Defense is very keenly uh, aware of the dangers presented by climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very much highlighted as a national security risk. And the Secretary Manish just recently did come out and, you know, claim that climate change is indeed a national security risk and something that we're looking at overall. Um, And even if you were to take out the phraseology that some might find controversial with, quote unquote, climate change, fundamentally, the issues still don't just remain the same. The fundamentals are still there. That is, uh, due to extreme weather events or wildfires or other disasters that causes tremendous disruptions in a variety of communities around the world that frequently come, you know, brings with it a tremendous amount of insecurity, whether it be food insecurity, other sources of resource insecurity, etc., for which are defense uh, forces will be called into action. So for them, it's just much more about, let's make sure that we're prepared. It's all about mission readiness. Um, Same thing with respect to their own energy supplies. If we are going to be involved in military conflicts around the world, we need to be able to guarantee our own supply chain of fuel, of supplies, of trucks and transport, et cetera. So we need to make sure, no matter what happens, or whoever's in office, that we're actually able to meet on that. So those are some big major roles that you've just mentioned for the federal government. Uh, though, how do you see that differing from in this country from how state and even local governments attack this area? How do they interact? What are some different possible roles for you know at the local levels? Yeah, absolutely. So state and local governments are a fantastic testbed and pilots, and, and candidly, they're a lot more nimble. Uh, due to the smaller size and scale, as well as perhaps less diverse nature of their operations. For example, here in the state of California, a rather large state admittedly, but it is still fairly um, obviously coastal based. And so a lot of the climate change risks are going to be more associated with that, coupled with wildfires, etc., compared to having to oversee operations across all 50 states that are both within, you know, outside of the continental United States, as well as within the continent, etc. Um, state and local governments also have... Uh, They are frequently also the largest landholders and motor vehicle fleet operators for their respective regions. And so from that respect, they can have tremendous impact upon the local policies and local ways in which they're actually driving both business as well as their implementation of their operations. Um, And super candidly, again, we learned in the federal government, we learned a lot of great lessons learned from what various cities and regions around the country were doing as we thought about how do we implement them at the federal level. Ah, that's interesting. So sort of an interplay there between the the two levels or the two scales. Yes. There's a lot of talk, at least in legal academia, and I think the legal world in general, about you know, how a lot of people feel some resentment and some hopelessness towards what the federal government is doing or not doing for sustainability and climate change and so forth. So take it from what you just said that you think 
to those people or for those people that kind of give up in that respect maybe it's a good idea to focus their energies and attention to the local very local levels or absolutely absolutely and ultimately that's what sustainability and both can the climate change adaptation and resilience really comes down to because it's about the independent the individual communities that we've got out there how do we all respond to various weather events or disasters, et cetera. How do we ensure that we've got our own emergency operations in place? How do we know in, in a location as, as large as LA County where we've got 88 municipalities who have their own police forces, they have their own mayors, their own city councils, et cetera. So how do we ensure that we've got good coordination happening across the various governments within a particular region? How do we also ensure that you know we as a community are also resilient. How well do we know our neighbors that if and when something should happen, how many of us actually know how many, you know, who's our neighbors? Um, how many children are in the house? Do they have pets so that when, when push comes to shove and we have to go in and do rescue, we can do a head count and do it accurately. Mm-hmm. Great. So lots of potential for the, at the local level. Uh, looking at it then conversely from the very national or international level mm-hmm. even what about what are your thoughts on the US Paris agreement announcement that we with, withdraw from the Paris agreement and what do you think that next means for for the US but also for governments around the world yeah it's absolutely um just disappointing uh beyond words that the Trump administration decided to take this course of action um i think frequently Many nations around the world look to the United States for leadership in a variety of areas to include innovation and democracy, and climate change was another uh, area. So I think it's unfortunate in that kind of regard. Now, that said, I think that there is a ton of things that many people can do outside of the federal government. Candidly, I think that it, roughly speaking, into it falls into three broad buckets. Uh, first is around decarbonizing the grid and or your sources of energy electrifying your fleets or the motor, the mobility and the motor vehicles. Uh, and lastly, increasing energy efficiencies in the way that we think about that. At least for assuming the governments are structured similar to the federal government, you've got an executive branch, a legislative branch, and the legislative branch, you know, frequently that might mean things like uh, authorizing or putting in legislation for enhanced financing mechanisms. Frequently, people want to do the right thing. They want to do the sustainability thing. They want to do solar panels, etc. We just don't have the funds. So that being the case, at least here in the United States, we've got programs like the PACE program, Property Assessed Clean Energy Programs, that help with that financing mechanism. Are there green banks that local governments can help set up? What about tax credits, for example, for vehicles or other kinds of purchases, uh, rebates that they might be eligible for from the utilities? And can we, might we be more flexible in thinking about expanding that beyond just electricity savings, but also with the energy water nexus? How do we want to think about that? Um, also with respect to the renewable portfolio standards or what kind of energy do we as a state or local government want to buy and espouse in policy and help codify that? On the executive side or the more regulation side of things, if you will, I think there's a lot of very good, super tangible things that can be accomplished, especially with respect to building codes. Um, a lot of the codes that we've got today uh, are still in the process of being upgraded to help take into consideration the things that we need to do for climate change, adaptation, and resilience. Just like 30 years ago here in Los Angeles, a lot of our building codes went through a massive overhaul with respect to earthquake safety. 
Uh, and that's everything from the structure to the pipelines to the uh, to the electric conduit, etc. There's a lot of stuff that we could be and should be doing with respect to how do we ensure that uh, multifamily homes can uh, plug in their EVs. That has significant implications for not just the structure, but also the electrical work within buildings, uh, etc. I think that um, again, state and local governments and local governments uh, certainly the best test beds for a lot of these policies, and I think that they can help make some very exciting things happen. That sounds interesting um, and promising. So back to what you're talking about in relation to building codes and so forth, a lot of the sustainability climate change discourse is often centered around you know new technologies and you know how we could develop new cars and so forth. Uh, but I've noticed there's been very little focus until maybe recently about what we can just do, even just to save the energy, you know, sort of, you know, turning down the temperature in summertime not, or up uh, in summertime, not having it so cold, down a little bit in wintertime, things like that. And often, I think we see in a lot of certain public buildings, a lot of energy wastage just through you know, heating, air conditioning. Um, so do you think that's true? Is there a lot of promise in, in that respect? Yes, absolutely. And I think um, given the propensity of mobile phones and smartphones and the number of apps and applications that we're seeing with Internet of Things, et cetera, around the home, those products are becoming much easier to use. In my experience, frequently, we just don't think about those kinds of things. We come home and the lights, you know, we don't think about where the electricity comes from for our lights or we don't really give too much thought to how well are our windows sealed, etc. And so to the extent that we can all, A, collectively get smarter on what all that means, uh, but also B, use those tools when they become available. And they are, again, becoming so easy and great. And it's also then becoming lumped into uh, homeowner awareness around security for their home. Oh, that's great. I can actually install a camera at the door. That's fantastic for security purposes. Related to that, can I also then install uh, security clips at the window so that I can detect when there might be some outdrafting, et cetera. Can I also set up a detector for, hey, your water bill's pretty expensive this month. You might have a leak somewhere. And you know, with the incorporation of a lot of that kind of technology, it really makes it very simple for us as when we go home. So we don't necessarily have to think about it necessarily, that it becomes part of the natural way we live our lives. And do you know how the U.S. federal and or state governments play a role in this? I know just as an example, I don't know if you've heard about this, but in San Francisco, one of the newly built uh, federal courthouses, I think it was, or at least a federal building, uh, was built in a way such that it was a super saving energy building or, you know, so is, can you talk about that a little bit? Is that something the government is doing to, you know, try to set an example for others or? Yes, absolutely. I think that the government in general, governments in general, um, Frequently, when you go to any kind of city or town, they represent uh, the primary, if not the primo, architecture that has staying power. Federal government buildings, for example, the average age is 50 years old across the federal uh, portfolio. And that's not necessarily just because of funding limitations, etc. But bottom line, when the federal government enters a community, we're usually there to stay. When we lease a facility, when the federal government leases a facility, we're there for at least 20 years. Why? Because when people go to get their services, they know where the Social Security office is. They know where the IRS office is. 
They know where the post office is. And those locations don't change. So from a longevity perspective, I think there's a fantastic opportunity to showcase a lot of great sustainability technologies and fantastic architectural um, solutions to highlight that and to really show it off candidly. Um, San, the San Francisco courthouse, um, it's a beautiful courthouse. There's another one also in LA, uh, which is super, super high efficiency, just beautifully done. Um, super smart designs when it comes to rain capture, et cetera, that are incorporated into that. And I think that they still serve as a beacon of hope and setting an example for the citizens around them for this is what we want to grow up to be. I was just exactly thinking that sounds like leading by example, which is, you know, always a, a good thing, it sounds like. Um, so that sounds um, optimistic. What, too, do you think some realistic steps are that listeners themselves might be able to do to further influence the discourse uh, among uh, policymakers around the world about these sustainability and climate change issues that are, even in this country, or maybe particularly in this country, still amazingly somewhat controversial? What can people do? You know, there's a lot of people, I think, that feel drowned out and they don't even dare mentioning anything. Mm. What, what would your advice be? Yeah, I think that's, um, and it's a really uh, interesting and difficult time in our nation right now where it does feel very polarized, um, where both sides, respectively, don't seem to be able to or willing uh, to listen to one another. And as a, this is on my personal note, uh, you know, as a Japanese American growing up as a minority in the United States, you know, I did experienced some fair share of racist comments, et cetera, you know, that kind of thing growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and overcoming some of those stereotypes um, takes an individual by individual, one-on-one -on -one type of approach. And I find that, I have found, at least in my personal opinion, that that is, by and large, kind of the only way to help overcome those kinds of stereotypes and eventually help undo that kind of harmful thinking that once you encounter an Asian, it's like, oh, maybe not all Asians are good at math, you know? <laughs> oh, but you're an Asian and you're a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and that type of thing. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, as we see both ourselves throughout the community becoming more involved in the community itself... Um, also, some portrayals in media is also helpful in helping to start dispel some of those myths and notions as well. With respect to more directly your, que your question around um, how can our listeners really help in this particular situation, so a couple of things. I think first, like granted, this audience, you guys are probably reasonably smart on the topic of sustainability, and the fact that you're listening shows that you care, so thank you very much. I think if you're trying to convert other people, convert's probably not the best word. If you try to convince other people of the merits of sustainability and or thinking about climate change, in my experience, frequently approaching it from either A, the listener's perspective and or B, from economic perspective, works a lot. Um, case in point, even across the federal agencies, the Environmental Protection Agency is staffed full of fantastic people who want to save the world. And that is exactly why they come and serve in the EPA, which is great. They're sold on sustainability and they have gone long and they've put in recycling programs like way before anybody else, drove hybrids way before anybody else, etc. Department of Defense, on the other hand, they have a fundamentally different mission. And for them, 
thinking about those kinds of things could be perceived as a luxury when they're being shot at at an eagle's nest in Afghanistan. That is the last thing from their minds, right? So how can we help build in sustainability such that it is, A, directly in line with their mainline mission? And in their case, it would be around, let's make sure that we can support our supply chain and get fuel to the people who are in theater in a way that is secure. Candidly, we are losing four out of five losses of life uh, in Afghanistan were directly due to supply chain operations and getting fuel to, into theater to fight that. You know, that's obviously, I would obviously love to not have to lose any lives. That's not the way that I want to do operations. So how can we A, make sure that it is directly in line with the frontline mission? And then B, let's vary up the language that we use as well. Because I think money really talks. And a lot of things about sustainability is like, hey, this stuff actually can save you like 20% off every year. Oh, and by the way, it also happens to be good for the environment. And that may or may not be, doesn't have to necessarily be the first leading thing that we go into the conversation. It's like, hey, you know, if you eat less red meat, it's better for the environment. Make that perhaps like, hey, red meat's pretty expensive. And if you actually substitute in with these other kinds of meats, etc., you'll find that your shopping bill is about 10% lower. You'll also find probably their healthcare situation is better depending on your, on your genetic makeup, etc. And oh, by the way, it also happens to be good for the environment. So that's very interesting what you're mentioning, Christine, because I think I've read a lot of, I guess, political or you know, sociological studies showing exactly what you're saying. Instead of being, you know, the discourse sort of splitting up and going, oh, we, you know, should do something for the environment that you're just never, you know, just irritates the other side a lot more. That right. maybe even though some might see it as sort of caving in and shutting up about things, but you're right, it might not be. And also at the end of the day, who cares if we do something for the environment? Then yeah, I think right. you know what you're saying. Can't we that, have it both ways? Yeah. Or just talk about it in right. certain ways. If still, you know, you're right, obviously not, you know, producing any lies, obviously not, or, you know, misfabrications or whatever, but that you're right, you know, highlighting, you know, all the facts about the certain issue instead right. of sort of just, you know, standing on a few select issues that end up just irritating people. More. Right. So I think that's really interesting. And also what you're saying at the end of the day, having some courage to just stand up and say, you know, the truth and speak up for, you know, the courage, have the courage to speak up for what, what right. effects are can be difficult for some, but, but um, that and still the, is necessary. The cartoon I used to paint in the federal government was, you know, when it came to climate change and adaptation planning, we're thinking through that. Most agencies, they understood. So that part wasn't as big of an issue. But in presenting it to other members of the public, you know, isn't climate change a waste of money? Are we just, isn't it a hoax? Are we wasting money on it? Um, let's not debate about the merits of the science, etc. But fundamentally speaking, like, if the sea level actually did rise due to some, if, if some defense, if some NASA base or Department of Defense base or Department of Energy installation ended up being flooded because we didn't think about that, wouldn't we be a bunch of chumps for not having thought about it, right? Then that's just another headline yeah. at the incompetence yeah. of the federal government. Boy, right. how come they right. couldn't think this stuff yeah. through? Right. And fundamentally, yeah. that's kind of where it's at. Yeah, it's true. And I think you said if that is true, I think that's a matter of when mm -hmm. the sea level is yes. right, because it yes. is already so that's another, you know, fact that right. that does matter. Right, <laughs> so right. So there's right. that. Um, Christine, talk to us a little bit about, if you would, what you're currently doing here in uh, LA. Sure. So I am currently working on two big projects. So one is with the XPRIZE Foundation. Uh, the XPRIZE Foundation, uh, it's a non-for-profit organization that seeks to bolster 
and accelerate uh, innovations to help solve some of our biggest, hairiest, most audacious challenges. In our case, we are looking to launch a competition uh, to help solve clean air. Traditionally speaking, um, managing for and or cleaning up uh, air pollution has largely been in the realm of governments because it's been a regulatory realm, which makes sense. A lot of the pollution does and can span, span boundaries. And so therefore, it is an appropriate role for government to take from a public good kind of perspective. Uh, and as we've, and I've grown up here in the LA area and have seen the changes dramatically since the 70s and 80s versus what it is today, which is great. Clearly those policies work. The bad news is they take decades for them to be effective. And so how can we A, help accelerate that process and B, candidly, how can we help put the power back into the people's hands and leverage the millions, if not the billions of people around the world to be able to take action. And so we're looking for teams to help us with divide, with, div, with designing um, personal air cleaning solutions that will also collect data at much higher levels of granularity than is currently available today, largely due to cost uh, issues. And so then how can we then use that data to help inform policymakers or other decision makers, et cetera? So that's my first project. Super fun. So I'm also working with the LA Clean Tech Incubator as a senior fellow, uh, where I'm helping them out with both public policy uh, type issues, as well as advising their portfolio companies on should they want to engage in doing business with governments, state and local federal governments, how should they think about that process. Is that A, a market opportunity that they want to get involved with? And then B, if so, then how do I think about doing that? Because there are costs and benefits associated with doing business with the government. So you mentioned uh, the phrase clean tech incubator as part of your current work. Um, can you elaborate on what the clean tech economy means? Yes. So it's a relatively all-encompassing phrase to be super candid. In our mm -hmm. case, you know, we are looking at it more from a both energy Uh, whether it be for residential or commercial applications, efficiency, renewable energy power solutions, et cetera, energy storage, um, as well as water. And that's obviously a very big concern for us here in the Los Angeles area where we've, California's estate had faced a drought over the last couple of years. And that is candidly a situation that is good, just going to continue. That is a fact of life uh, about the Southern California climate. Um, largely a lot of the business opportunities and the technologies that our companies are developing uh, largely fall in two broad buckets. So the first is around you know, decreasing greenhouse gas emissions um, and also promoting the circular economy that we're actually thinking about how we want to do breakdown and recycling of a product prior to actually you know, designing it and releasing it, manufacturing, et cetera. An additional thing that uh, we are focused on in particular at the LA Clean Tech Incubator um, is social impact. We want to make sure that our businesses, the portfolio companies that we support appropriately reflect the diversity um, of the LA area. Uh, and we're very much focused on the triple bottom line, making sure that we are doing things in an economically sustainable manner, environmentally friendly, and of course, then having a great social impact as well. Great. That sounds interesting. Um, and that too speaks to what you mentioned before about how not everything is about you know, top-down regulations and initiatives, but that there also is money to be made and you know, interaction and and uh, business opportunities, which actually is mm -hmm. some of the things that the current administration uh, are focused on. So it all comes together, I right, guess. Right, absolutely. Great. 
Great, Christine. This all sounds very interesting and very promising for people not only in Los Angeles, but also in um, other parts of the nation and perhaps even around the world. Is there anything uh, you'd like to add to or what we just talked about? I would like to just plea, put out my personal plea to all the listeners. Um, I recognize that you likely, your values are likely in alignment with mine uh, with respect to wanting to do good for the environment and to live our lives in a sustainable way. I highly encourage you and plead that you please start engaging with your communities, with your neighbors. Um, listen to their perspectives, especially if they're different. Uh, let's please try not to judge or be too judgy in how we interact with them. Large, In large parts, most people, again, want to do the right thing. They want to do what's good for the environment. They know it in their hearts that that's ultimately what they want to do. Frequently, it's about the, the resistance comes from, well, okay, but now you're asking, I feel judged because my job or my livelihood is negatively impacting the environment. And what you're asking me to do is to give up my job. I still need to pay for my kids. I still need to figure out how to make a living, etc. And that's a very real and also very visceral uh, thing for most folks. And I'm sure that if the argument were posed to us in the other direction, we'd probably have the same kind of reaction. So let's think through how best can we engage with these folks who may not necessarily want to or know how to live their lives in this kind of a manner and help them get there. That sounds like very salient advice. Let's hope that people will take you up on doing just that. I think they will. Christine, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Today I interviewed Christine Harada, who is currently the ex working for the XPRIZE Foundation as a bold innovator, developing the next XPRIZE for clean air. She's also a senior fellow with the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>